Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike Lucuteur. Today, inappropriate interference or fair phone call. We have newly released audio recordings of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. She was speaking to Nova Scotia officers in the aftermath of the 2020 mass shooting in that province. So did she try to interfere or are attacks unfair? We break it all down with former Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner and CTV News Public Safety Analyst Chris Lewis. Then Liz Truss is Britain's shortest serving Prime Minister. I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. The embattled PM resigned amidst economic turmoil and a caucus revolt. Is that country headed for a general election? We bring in a member of the UK Parliament to have a look at that. Plus, no police plan for the convoy. So this is the chief saying that the plan is excellent, right? Yes. Uh, do you agree that it was an excellent plan? I don't think we had a plan at that point in time. The National Inquiry into the Invoking of the Emergencies Act hears Ottawa police had ample intelligence weeks before the convoy overtook the city's downtown core, but police failed to act on it. Why weren't the police in our capital ready? We'll bring in a former Ottawa police chief to break it all down. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. Audio recordings being shared today are shedding new light on allegations of political interference in a major police investigation. The allegations involve the federal government and RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky. Now, they first emerged last spring at the Nova Scotia mass shooting inquiry, which is looking into the 2020 tragedy where 22 people were murdered in a two-day shooting spree. Commissioner Lucky was alleged to be interfering in the investigation in order to help push the Liberal government's changes to the gun regulations, which they did bring in days later. Now, according to handwritten notes from Nova Scotia RCMP Superintendent Darren Campbell in an April 2020 phone call, quote, Commissioner Lucky felt that the Nova Scotia RCMP had disobeyed her instructions to include specific information on the firearms used by the perpetrator. And according to Campbell, Commissioner Lucky stated that she had promised the public minister, the minister of public safety and the prime minister's office that the RCMP would release this information. Now, Commissioner Lucky has denied she interfered with the investigation. And today's partial audio of that contested conversation has been released by the mass shooting inquiry. Take a listen to this. Does anybody realize what's going on in the world of handguns and guns right now? The fact that they're in the middle of trying to get a legislation going, the fact that that legislation is supposed to actually help police, and the fact that the very little information I asked to be put in speaking notes at around 11.30 this morning uh, is when I started this, which was three or more hours before Darren was to speak, could not be accommodated. So there's more, and let's give you some context. A letter written by RCMP communications manager Leah Scanlon, dated April 14th, 2021, claimed that Lucky was incensed that those details about the gun were not released. She called Lucky's tone, quote, unprofessional and extremely belittling. But the recordings released today paint a different picture of Lucky's tone. Have a listen here. 
I feel bad even having this conversation because I don't want any of you to feel bad. But I, it's, it's, it's disheartening for me to try to manage our RCMP, which is bigger than Nova Scotia, um, and trying to at least give the Prime Minister a bit of information before he hears it on the news. That's kind of a normal course of events, and yet we couldn't do that. Joining me now to discuss the latest in this saga is CTV News Parliamentary Bureau Chief Joyce Napier. Joyce, thanks for being here. First off, what stood out to you in these recordings? Well, what stood out to me is a little bit what you were saying earlier, is the tone uh, that she used when she spoke to them. Because what we heard during the testimony mm -hmm. at the commission uh, by high-ranking Nova Scotia RCMP officers, what, three or four of them, is that... She was berating them. She was angry. And, you know, she was clearly irritated. Right. Uh, that's, that, that is, is clear. But, you know, she says, for instance, and I quote, I don't want to hurt people when they're hurting. So, actually, she was a little bit more compassionate and more sympathetic than these RCMP officers painted her. I think it is important to put this in a context. The RCMP was under very big criticism at the time. Mm -hmm. And to this day, I spoke to the lawyer representing the families of, the, of these 22 victims, or right. some of these 22 victims, a couple of months ago. And he was saying the RCMP is still not releasing information. The RCMP is still being secretive. He was extremely frustrated, as the families were. So at the time, we know, uh, because we heard from at this commission, that... The information wasn't coming out of the RCMP. Yeah. They hadn't warned people. There's a whole bunch of mistakes that were made. And I know that hindsight is twenty twenty. We all know that. And we know that these people suffered uh, a loss as well. One RCMP officer was killed yeah. uh, during this, this rampage. But the way she was depicted in their testimony and what we hear in this recording is not quite the same thing. Did she mention, yes, that the government, it wasn't legislation, it was regulations, uh, it was 1,500, uh, you know, uh, handguns that they, they wanted to ban. You know, interference, she is the head of the RCMP. If she doesn't interfere, then who? We've got about a minute left. Take a step back now, because there was these, these allegations now of her interference, the Liberals interfering as well. We saw it play out in question period on Parliament Hill. Uh, a lot of opposition parties are dining out on this. What does that do to that narrative now about whether or not there was interference now that we're hearing these? Well, I, I didn't read in any of the transcripts I saw or what I heard today that she said she had promised mm -hmm. uh, uh, Bill Blair, who was then the minister responsible, um, and that really on was guns. on the guns that yeah, she promised him that they, yes, that the RCMP that a map and would, other exactly, yeah. would reveal, at least in this press conference, which guns were used in yeah. the rampage. So, you know, they could push forward this regulation, they, which they, they didn't really need to do. So I think that it, it, it gives it another perspective. What, they, what politicians will do with it and what the prime minister will do with it is a different story. But it actually puts it in another perspective. This is not a boss that berated. Uh, she was actually quite sympathetic. Uh, look, the RCMP was not doing uh, the best job, let's say, and we're being kind when we say that. Uh, the RCMP wasn't doing the best job. And, you know, when you're not doing the best job, the boss can't be happy. I appreciate that. Joyce is my boss, and hopefully she's okay with the, jo the job that I'm doing now. But, Joyce, thank you very much for that insight. We appreciate it. CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier. And now, after a historically short tenure, Liz Truss is out 
as Prime Minister of the UK. And we set out a vision for a low-tax, high-growth economy that would take advantage of the freedoms of Brexit. I recognise, though, given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I have therefore spoken to His Majesty the King to notify him that I am resigning as leader of the Conservative Party. After, after just 45 days in office, Liz Truss resigned in an equally short 200-word statement outside 10 Downing Street. Now, her tax-cutting policies created turmoil in financial markets and sparked an uprising within her own party. Truss is the third Conservative Prime Minister to resign in as many years and the fourth PM to call it quits after the 2016 Brexit vote. Truss's mini-budget had promised large tax cuts and a cap on energy prices, and it caused shockwaves in British markets. She would then walk back those policies and fire her finance minister, ultimately setting up a domino effect leading to her political demise. So now that Truss is out as PM, where does the UK government go from here, and how will the chaos in Westminster reverberate in Scotland? Joining us now from London is Scottish National MP, uh, Scottish National Party MP Richard Thompson. He's the SNP Shadow Finance Secretary. Welcome to the show. First, I wanted to get right into it here. Are you surprised by Truss's resignation, or was the writing basically on the wall? Well, good evening. Um, <clears throat> no, I wasn't surprised. Um, the writing had indeed been on the wall for some time. Uh, the, the question was just simply when she would realise that the, her time was up. Um, it's telling that uh, she, she made the, the statement today. She started this week with a number of parliamentary hurdles to overcome, perhaps the biggest of which was Prime Minister's questions at lunchtime uh, yesterday. And she had, it wasn't the worst performance she's given in the, the UK Parliament in that forum, but it still wasn't great. But over the course of uh, the day, she just had uh, the disasters unfolded. She lost the, the Home Secretary, who she had to call for her to resign because of a, a breach of uh, security of <clears throat> around market-sensitive uh, financial information. And then there was a vote on uh, hydraulic fracking for gas in England uh, later that evening, which was uh, a highly contentious vote within our party. And basically, there was a complete breakdown in the party discipline last night, which led to the, the resignation of both her chief whip and her deputy chief whip. They subsequently unresigned. But I think it just showed that, that, that the complete loss of financial credibility to begin with allied to the loss of uh, political credibility and then the complete breakdown in uh, the parliamentary operation yesterday, I think, left her with little alternative but to, uh, but to, but to go. Um, it was clear that uh, she'd lost the confidence of uh, most, if not all, of our parliamentary party. When you consider her party, but also what we have seen in your parliament, I mean, should there be a general election called? This is, as I had mentioned, the third Conservative Prime Minister to resign in as many years. Do we now just need to take this to the people? I would, I would say so. I think there's a democratic imperative to do that, uh, not just because the Prime Minister who was elected, admittedly we don't directly elect Prime Ministers, but the Prime Minister who was the, who, Boris Johnson was the leader of the largest party after the last election, he has gone and now his replacement has had to go as well. She's conceded that she's unable to deliver on her mandate of taking advantage of uh, the 
supposed advantages that came from the UK leaving the European Union. Full disclosure, I was on the opposite side of that argument and wanted to stay along with my party. But I think the, the, re the reality is here. Nobody can uh, deliver on that mandate because the, the benefits of uh, low tax, low regulation and all the benefits that would supposedly flow have been shown to be entirely illusory and uh, undeliverable, and we've seen how the markets have reacted to that. So I think not only is there a political manifesto in tatters, but the mandate in which they were elected in December 2019 is also now in tatters. And I don't think that, uh, although there's no constitutional requirement for an election, the best thing for all concerned would be to hit the reset button on this government and this parliament and allow the people to have their say at the ballot box. I've just got about a minute left, if you don't mind, and specifically because uh, you're from the Scottish National Party, I wanted to ask you whether or not the chaos within the Conservative ranks actually helps the cause for Scottish independence. Well, I think I would like to think that the positive arguments for independence over for Scottish independence override anything that might happen at Westminster. But a key plank of our case is that our interests are not well served at Westminster. And with the best will in the world, I can't imagine that anyone who has looked at the events of the last 45 days, but particularly the last couple of weeks, could look at that and sincerely think that uh, an independent Scotland couldn't do better than the, the political culture that has served up this parliament and this government. Uh, but there are many, many more positive arguments to make than that. But I'm, I'm certain that that will be the events of the last couple of weeks will certainly be crystallising in a lot of people's minds uh, whether or not uh, this is the best that we can do. Mr. Thompson, I really appreciate you joining us from London tonight. Thanks so much. That's uh, Richard Thompson. He's the Scottish National Party MP in London. Well, up next, police floundering as the protest flared up. That's how the deputy chief of Ottawa police described the situation as the convoy took over the downtown core. We speak to a former Ottawa police chief about the chaos on the streets and behind closed doors. Stay with us. What would you have done differently in this planning phase? Um, I suppose we would have given more credibility to the information and intelligence telling us that there was a faction that we're planning on staying for a much longer period of time. So did we err in, in our assessment of this? Clearly we did. I think, um, as I stated before, that I think the Emergencies Act um, made us more confident in, in the approach we were taking. That was acting Deputy Chief of the Ottawa Police Service, Patricia Ferguson. Her testimony at the inquiry into the invoking of the Emergencies Act today painted a picture of a police service that didn't have a game plan right in the middle of the protest. Now, Ferguson told the commission the planning for the convoy was based entirely on the assumption that the convoy would last only two to three days. And she did admit Ottawa police were given intelligence that warned the demonstration on Parliament Hill would last weeks. So why didn't Ottawa police pivot? And did infighting within the force get in the way of taking action? Let's find out. Joining me now is former Senator Vernon White. Before he resigned from the Senate, he was part of the Special Joint Committee on the Declaration of the Emergencies Act. He also spent 24 years in policing, including five as Ottawa's police chief from 2007 to 2012. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to start right away with that admission from the Acting Deputy Chief Patricia Ferguson, saying that the police planned for the convoy to last just two to three days, even though.
though they had that intelligence from the OPP suggesting that it'd be much longer. How critical was that assumption? Well, obviously, I think it uh, set them up to fail. Um, you know, you have to trust your intelligence and you have to act on your intelligence and preparing a plan that would have allowed them to actually, uh, first of all, blockade in front of Wellington Street. They knew there was thousands of uh, people coming. I think everybody who uh, followed the uh, Facebook pages that were out there by some of the convoy folks knew who was coming and knew where they were coming from. So you probably figured out they weren't going to stay only at 24 hours or 48 hours. So I think uh, having a plan that would have allowed them to shut down the Wellington Street area so that they wouldn't have had the backdrop of Parliament Hill in front of them would have been very helpful, as you can see on the video here, because I think that would have set a different tone for them. Uh, secondly, I think, uh, you know, obviously there was a, a discourse within um, the senior executive and, and even within council from what we're hearing from, uh, from witnesses this past week uh, that would have, again, set them up for a path of failure. I think complaining... Um, a week into this that others weren't there to help you out. It's a little difficult when you haven't done enough to help yourself. And I think that's one of the challenges the police service faced at this point in time is the fact that they didn't have a plan to, to deal with something that obviously uh, OPP and other agencies felt was going to be a long-term problem. I want to go back to that intelligence. As a former police chief, is there any scenario in which you could see a high-ranking officer dismiss such intelligence as the length of a, pro a protest? Well, look, you know, people make mistakes, so I, I won't say that the, that doesn't happen, but you have to be able to recover quickly and get back to your job and back to task. And I think by the Monday, I think it was Tuesday, the chief said that he wasn't sure there was a police solution. I think by the Monday, they had to have had a plan rolling by then. That would have included other agencies and actually had a pathway forward to either keep more people from joining that uh, group uh, or start removing people even it from that uh, in front of Wellington Street. Because I think even if even if you accept the fact that mistakes were made in those first few days, it grew every day after that. It's not like it was dissipating. And really, though, I didn't see a path that was going to start to uh, reduce the number of people that uh, were were becoming invo involved in this in this uh, this uh, blockade downtown. So I think that's the second piece that we should talk about <clears throat> is, what, you know, why is it that even on the Monday when they realized it wasn't going to be a 48-hour problem, uh, why weren't they taking steps at that point? I didn't hear them say they didn't have enough staff, but I can tell you, and, and I've had discussions with former OPP commissioners and former police chiefs from across Ontario when this was going on, that a phone call between chiefs will get you a couple of hundred officers pretty fast um, because we're all end up at some point in time, one of those situations where we need more officers. So I, I think that's the piece that now they have to focus on as well, is that what was their plan when they did realize it was going for crap, to be blunt. Yeah, and a lot of those fingers, as you were talking about chiefs, have been pointed this week anyways at former police chief Peter Slowly. He resigned over this. He's also going to be testifying. What do you want to hear from him here, and what would your first question to Chief Slowly be if you were able to put questions to him at this inquiry? I've heard him at the I've heard him in the uh, Parliamentary uh, Emergency Act inquiry, and I've heard his evidence there. He's talking about, you know, the fact that he didn't anticipate this would go as as it had, uh, the fact that you know they didn't act as they probably would have in hindsight. Um, I think the questions I would like to have asked now are around. 
when other people warned you about what was coming, what did you tell them you were going to do about it? Uh, when the parliamentary precinct security asked you to blockade Wellington Street, why did you disagree and allow for what you call at the time, I think, a single laneway? Um, that's the, and, and when you're getting intelligence reports from, you know, hotel, hotel uh, uh, associations in Gatineau, as much as it may not be 100% valid, it's still something you have to consider. But on top of that, the OPP evidence that was that was telling us that uh, this was bigger than just a, a 48-hour spree from a bunch of Westerners and trucks. So I think the questions now need to surround why didn't you act, at least on that Monday, Tuesday. And there was comments on Tuesday around there may not be a police response. I think that that has to be pursued as well. What did you mean by that? And what did you think was the response that was going to solve this? If it wasn't a police response, was he asking for aid to civil power? In other words, the military to be brought in, as we've done in some other uh, issues, some other uh, cases across Canada. Uh, if so, then I haven't heard him say that either. So I think the the questions now need to be focused on what was he think was going to happen on that Monday, Tuesday, if he didn't think it was police uh, police response. Appreciate it, Senator White. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it right there. Thank you so much for joining us. That was former okay. Ottawa Police Chief and former Senator. Vern White. Coming up, a decade-long fight for government documents turned away by the Supreme Court. But a group of St. Anne's residential school survivors aren't done fighting. We'll talk to one of the survivors next. Stay right there. Power Play. We'll be right back. The Supreme Court of Canada has ruled it will not hear the case of a group of residential school survivors from northern Ontario. The group from St. Anne's has been fighting with the federal government, asking it to hand over documents. The survivors say the government is in breach of the Indian Residential School Settlement Agreement because it withheld documentation of abuse when deciding their compensation. St. Anne's operated in Fort Alberni, First Nation, Ontario until 1976. Survivors say some students were punished by being placed in an electric chair. So where does the fight for documents go from here? Well, let's find out. Joining me now is activist Evelyn Cormaz. Evelyn is also a survivor of St. Anne's Residential School. Thank you so much for making the time to be with us today. Evelyn, I wanted to ask you first off, what was your reaction when you learned of the court decision and that they won't hear your appeal? It was unbelievable. Uh, I couldn't believe it. I, I was shocked. Uh, I thought they would, you know, hear our appeal um, because that would be the right thing to do. <laughs> uh, you know, um, there's just so many things wrong with this whole process of the, the justice system. Uh, the rule of law doesn't apply to uh, Indigenous people. You know, the, there's no justice, no reconciliation. Those are just hollow words. And, um, you know, I'm disappointed but not surprised, uh, you know, because we have been fighting for 10 years, over 10 years, in the in the courtrooms of Canada. Um, but it's okay, you know, for Canada to breach the agreement. It's okay for them not to release the documents. It's okay for them to uh, release the Catholic Church from their obligations to pay the $30 million for 
the healing of the residential school uh, survivors across Canada. It's okay to discover, you know, these unmarked graves and just walk away from it without any kind of action. We have all the evidence in front of us, but yet the highest court in Canada says we're not going to hear you. We had no voices as children and we have no voices as adults. So we're going to have to take this further up the ladder. I'm yeah, just talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, sorry, I, was, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but uh, as I understand it, you're going to try and, and take this all the way up to international courts here. How do you think that they can play a factor? Well, we're not going to try to take this to the you know, um, international court. We're going to take this to international court because this has to stop. We, we should have equal rights in the justice system. Or you, there's no such thing in Canada. If we don't have our rights, you know, we have to go and find them elsewhere where Canada is held accountable. Canada is breaking the law here. They're breaking, you know, they're not honoring our human rights. I don't know. It's just, and I'm I just, imagine if you could, I, I've only got about 30 seconds or, or less, Evelyn. I mean, what does this say about the dedication of this government to reconciliation then? It's shameful. It's very, very shameful. It's just words. Yeah. Well said. Evelyn Corkmass, thank you so much for making the time and good luck with the rest of this battle. We really appreciate you being with us. We're going to move now to British Columbia, where the path to B.C., the NDP leadership, just opened up to David Ebby. He is the only contestant um, after another one was disqualified from the race. So will David Eby be inherit a divided party? And what ramifications will that disqualification have on the party? Joining me now is CTV News' Burhinder Sajjan. Why was he disqualified, first off? Well, Mike, uh, so it was Anjali Apadurai who was actually disqualified from the race. And the NDP uh, says it received some complaints about her campaign. So the chief electoral officer actually looked into these complaints and found that the Apadurai campaign uh, coordinated with third parties in a way that constituted serious misconduct. Um, they say that the third party was asking people who may actually be members of other parties to join temporarily just so they could vote and say that that's not allowed under the NDP rules. Now, Apaderai has fired back and says that uh, the party actually changed the interpretation of the rules partway through the campaign. But what she really thinks is happening here is that she signed up way more members than her opponent, David Eby. And so um, because he is the insider, he's a former cabinet minister, she's an outsider, a newcomer to the party who is a climate activist. Uh, she thought that was a problem for the establishment. And so that is why she believes she's being targeted, something the party denies. So what's at stake now for David Eby? Well, David Eby will tomorrow be announced as the next NDP leader. He then becomes the premier designate. Um, and he has 
as I said, he's been a former cabinet minister. He's uh, been in John Horgan's cabinet for the last five years. He actually uh, was asked by John Horgan when he became leader if he wanted to run, but he said, no, my kids are too young. Uh, so now he becomes a premier. He will take over uh, from a man who's you know, the, the poll show is very popular amongst the public. So he will have to try and uh, recreate some of that emotional connection that John Horgan definitely had with the public. CTV's Binder Sajjan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate this. Coming up, will new audio recordings clear RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky? When it, comes to the, when it comes to those accusations of political interference, former OPP Commissioner Chris Lewis joins our press gallery panel next. Stay with PowerPlay. Does anybody realize what's going on in the world of handguns and guns right now? The fact that they're in the middle of trying to get a legislation going, the fact that that legislation is supposed to actually help police, and the fact that the very little information I asked to be put in speaking notes at around 11.30 this morning uh, is when I started this, which was three or more hours before Darren was to speak could not be accommodated. That again was audio of RCMP Commissioner Brenda Lucky meeting with Nova Scotia RCMP officers in the aftermath of the 2020 mass shooting in that province. Now those meetings were at the crux of the allegation of political interference leveled against Commissioner Lucky, which she denied at the time. But now that the partial audio has been released, is Commissioner Lucky vindicated or is she in hotter water? Well, let's bring in the press gallery to dig into this. We've got Toronto star Stephanie Levitz. We've got the Globe and Mail's Ian Bailey. He writes the Globe's daily political briefing. And our special guest is CTV News' public safety analyst, Chris Lewis, also the former OPP commissioner. Thank you all for being here. Chris, we're going to start with you. What did you make of the audio, and does this vindicate Commissioner Lucky? Well, I don't think it vindicates her at all. I think it, it further implicates her whether or not it's you know political interference or just commissioner interference we don't know but certainly uh, listening to those tapes today and reading the transcript it's a little confusing because she's discussing a couple issues she's concerned about in terms of just information flow in general from nova scotia headquarters about you know the worst mass murder in canadian history uh, and the information that was supposed to go in a press release or a press conference by then superintendent darren campbell regarding the types of weapons that they seized down there in that, in that awful murder investigation. And that, of course, initially uh, was in Superintendent Campbell's notes, which something like uh, you know, a scene from a Tom Clancy novel went missing and then reappeared, and then the recording of the conversation went missing, and now it's reappeared. And in the meantime, she denied saying those things, or at minimum said didn't remember saying them, uh, but in the tapes, it's very clear. She said she promised the minister's office certain information would be included, despite the concerns of Superintendent Campbell and others. Uh, they stuck to their guns and didn't include it, and she was upset about it. So who's telling the truth and who's not here? Chris, just before I bring in the other two, you, you mentioned the difference between political interference and commissioner interference. How is that different? 
Well, if, if, if she was asking for information to be released on criminal investigation that investigators said shouldn't be for a variety of reasons, investigatively, uh, interfere with her ongoing investigation into the source of the guns, etc., uh, if government asked for it, that was wrong. They're interfering. If she asked for it uh, and then promised government, oh, I'll get it and volunteered it, that changes things a bit. Who, you know, is a chicken or an egg thing? Who wanted it and why? Uh, but put all that aside, somebody's not telling the truth about that. Darren Campbell's notes seem pretty legit, and the, con and the conference mm -hmm. call uh, stuff seems pretty legit and sounds like it hasn't been manufactured. So I would say that the commissioner's got a problem with reality here, either intentionally or unintentionally. Yeah, so I'll bring you in now, Stephanie, to ask you, in terms of even that difference of who asked for it and when, uh, but at the time when we heard about all this with the notes, her job was in danger. I mean, people were calling for her to resign. Is that calculation now off the table? You know, uh, your guest previous just ma made the good point. The, the tape, one thing the tape doesn't do, nowhere does it say, and then the Minister of Public Safety demanded that I release this mm -hmm. information. We don't have that, to, I, that piece of information, I guess, that would explain exactly where did this interference come from? What was the motivation behind it? It clearly was political, though. I mean, it was clearly the commissioner being aware of the political climate, being aware of her political masters, knowing what kind of information they certainly might like out there at the right. moment, and trying to get that information for them. Is that good? Doesn't seem like it's good, even if she wasn't directly told to do it by those political masters. So about her political masters, Ian, I mean, what does this mean for them now? Is this is the heat off of them a little bit as a result of these? The heat may be off them a little bit, but of course, this inquiry has been going on uh, while other events have been going on. But this brings it back into the foreground. Anyone can go click and listen to those tapes. And this issue is back. There are going to be questions for her political masters. There are going to be questions for the commissioner. And uh, both sides are going to have to address these questions in the coming days, I think. Yeah. And Chris, just back to you, the RCMP painted this tone of the meeting that was very different from what we ended up hearing. But I mean, also, these are partial recordings. That's the other thing. There may be other portions that we haven't heard. Uh, was this a case of the Nova Scotia RCMP, though, trying to deflect criticism over their handling of the mass shooting? Because again, let's remember, this whole commission into the mass shooting is about that handling of it. For sure. Uh, you know, and you can kind of see both sides of it. At one point, she seemed rather tense and, and concerned and was fairly um, strong, but she certainly was not. I didn't find insulting at all. I'm not proud of it, but I've talked to employees in difficult situations in a much stronger way than that. And at times, she was very kind of very nice about it. It was almost like they're talking to their aunt. You know, it really wasn't. I didn't find it offensive at all. But, you know, when, when, uh, Stephanie just made the point that you know, it was related politically for sure to the firearms legislation. The commissioner herself mentions that. And where I, I my uh, uh, earlier statement, is it political or not? I guess it all is in, in a big picture way. But was it politicians that really made it happen versus uh, the commissioner just trying to help government make herself look good? Maybe. I don't know. Does this, Steph, does this public airing of this sort of internal battle in the RCMP really hurt the public perception of our Mounties? Well, I mean, it's interesting, right, because it comes at a time when the public perception of policing is very much under the microscope. I mean, think about the, you know, the commission into the Freedom Convoy and the Use of the Emergencies Act that's going on right now and the tensions that's exposing between politicians and the police. Who gets to intervene? The Mounties were already grappling with a number of problems before this one. And so it sort of begs the question of where we're at um, in the national debate over all of our policing services right. and the role between government 
and police. When is interfering going too far? When is directing going too far? When do politics get in the way of true public safety? These are big questions, I think, that are being brought back to the fore again with these tapes that we're hearing you know, down the street here in Ottawa with the commission. And it'll be interesting to see how the national debate on policing in this country is changed as a result. Ian, what do you think of that? No, I agree, and I'll be looking forward to seeing how both of these sides react to this this, the, this material in, in the next few days, to seeing, um, you know, Stephanie's right, this sort of feeds into the, the, the ongoing uh, inquiry into the Emergencies Act and that discussion about policing that's drawn in the Mounties, the OPP, and other police departments. This is going to be another chapter in that book, so to speak, and uh, I'll be interested to see how it, uh, how it plays out in the next uh, few days. For at least a few days, Ian, the Conservatives yeah. were dining out on this yes. in, in question period. Yes. Does this blow their argument that this was a massive ordeal right out of the water or like what does this do politically on Parliament Hill now that we're seeing this sort of different side of the conversation? Well, it depends, I guess, on how the parties, the relevant parties here react, I guess, um, you know, on how this plays out. It's maybe a bit too soon uh, to say how it plays out. A lot of other things are going on right now, so it'll be interesting to see how this fits into the discussion, whether this comes back as uh, how much, it's a certainly an issue, how much more of an issue it is given the inquiry that's going on and other issues that are sort of at play these days. Chris, just lastly in closing, I wanted to ask you, because you had said, you know, as an OPP commissioner, that you had had conversations that maybe at this point, you know, would be seen in a different light. Do you think that's where we are right now, that, you know, on paper that this looked worse than we are now hearing in the audio? Or, or is it a matter of, you know, sometimes you, as a boss, you have to have a tough quest, you have to have, to, uh, have a tough conversation with some of your subordinates? Well, sometimes you do, and, and depending how you can hold your temper when you're frustrated, and she was with a variety of issues, including this piece about the press information regarding guns. Uh, I think it changes the tone uh, in terms of hearing her tone uh, in that she wasn't berating, swearing, being really difficult, or very conciliatory mostly, although she was fairly strong about a couple of the points. So that changes that end of it, but I think the contents around who said what, who said the, it didn't happen when, in fact, we heard it ourselves today, it did. Uh, those are things that still have to be kind of worked out and, and ironed out in some way, if that's at all possible. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. Stephanie and Ian, you're going to be sticking around for our next edition of the Press Gallery. Coming right up, we're going to be talking about a budget. And is a budget cut now warning here? I mean, the Toronto Star has been reporting that Chris Chafrila is bracing her cabinet colleagues to think about some cuts ahead of next year's budget. Are the Liberals shifting towards the A-word, austerity? Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Jihou joins the Press Gallery when we return. Welcome back. Is an economic storm on the horizon? Well, Canada's Finance Minister, Christopher Freeland, is warning difficult days are ahead for Canada's economy. And now, a warning to Cabinet. Well, Toronto Store reporter and friend of PowerPlay, Stephanie Levitz. Yes, she's sitting next to me. You're going to see her in a second. She says a letter to Cabinet ministers from Freeland warned that if they want money for new programs in the next federal budget, they'll need to find budget cuts of their own. So, as Canadians grapple with costs of living, is the federal government eyeing austerity? 
And speaking of the cost of living, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, who you see right there on your screen, has a costing note out today on the proposed dental care benefit that the Liberals and the NDP say will help low-income families. We'll get to that in a second. How much will that cost? He'll tell us. Let's bring in the press gallery. Again, Stephanie Levitz, thank you for joining me. We have Globe and Mail's Ian Bailey. And, of course, we also have the Parliamentary Budget Officer, our special guest today, Yves Giroux. Thank you so much. Stephanie, we're going to start with you in this letter that you obtained. Tell us a little bit bit about what you have learned. So as part of the budget process every year, um, the finance minister normally goes to her cabinet colleagues, sort of lays out her expectations for the proposals coming back, gives them a deadline, says this is what I want to, this is what I need to hear your pitch. Mm -hmm. This year's letter included a bit of a, a wrinkle to that pitch, and it was, listen, if you're going to come to me and you're going to ask for more money, you better find a way to pay for some of that new program yourself. 25% of that budget has to be covered by what the bureaucratic term is reallocation. What right. that actually means, of course, is cuts. Um, and this is interesting, of course, because it's coming at a time when Christa Freeland has really been changing a bit of her economic narrative. She has gone from focusing on you know, sunny days and great things right. to warning that bad things are happening in the economy and the government cannot bail everybody out. And she's been using the cuts word, saying it's time for the government to make some cuts. And she's been down obviously now downloading some of that onto cabinet and their own departments. Speaking of Christopher Finn, we'll get to you two in a second. She is live right now taking questions at Edmonton. We're going to cover that for a little bit. Stay with us. Ask if you had any reaction or, or thoughts on, on the Premier of Alberta saying those things. Well, I'll tell you who I heard from about that a lot is my family in Alberta, my Ukrainian-Canadian family in Alberta. Uh, I think that was deeply hurtful to Ukrainian Canadians here in Alberta, and also frightening. Uh, and I think all of us, we, Russia, Russia spends a huge amount of money on disinformation, and we really mustn't be naive about that. We have to be very, very critical. Um, and, you know, you'll notice Gil is wearing a Ukrainian flag on his lapel. I'm wearing a Ukrainian bracelet. Um, I saw in the other building uh, a warehouse uh, where the Boilermakers, working together with the Alberta UCC and its great leader, Oresia, have been collecting supplies for the Ukrainian refugees who are here. Um, I know that Albertans, maybe especially people in northern Alberta, have a profound understanding of what's happening in Ukraine. Um, I feel like I'm a member of the Ukrainian-Canadian community here in Edmonton. And I think our community here in Edmonton can be really proud of everything we've done for generations, actually, to preserve the Ukrainian language and culture, which Putin is currently trying to destroy. So, you know, let's all, as Albertans, as Canadians, it's really important to stand up for Ukraine. And just the last thing I'll say about it, it's, I obviously have a deep personal connection with what's happening in Ukraine. But that fight should matter to every single person in a democracy, whether they have Ukrainian roots or not. The fight that is happening in Ukraine right now is a fight between democracy and dictatorship. It is one tyrant's effort to wipe a country off the map because it wants to be free and refuses to be subjugated. 
And the outcome of that fight matters to the idea of democracy and the success of democracies around the world. So yeah, I do feel strongly about it. And to follow up on uh, not specifically that, but in your remarks you mentioned that the government will be there with the Canada Pension Plan. Um, can you say that? Can you assure Albertans of that, um, given that there's a reasonably good chance that Alberta will be pulling out of the CPP? So look, um, on the CPP, uh, I really believe that the CPP and the security it provides to And that is Christopher Freeland in Edmonton right now taking questions from reporters. Uh, we will go back to it if we have time, but uh, we're going to come back to our press gallery. Mr. Jihu, Parliamentary Budget Officer, will bring you in here. I wanted to ask you, Freeland has been issuing these sort of warnings of dark financial days are coming. Uh, what should the government do to try and cushion some of that impact? Well, it's, it's difficult to say precisely what they should be doing. Uh, I'm not here to talk about policy predicaments, but what we see on the horizon is, is a, a slowdown, an economic slowdown. We don't necessarily anticipate a recession, even though it is possible that Canada will enter a recession. We don't see that as the most likely scenario right now. So in all likelihood, the minister is just warning her colleagues about uh, an impeding slowdown which is already happening so she's probably just lowering expectations when it comes to uh, the amount of flexibility that she's right. willing to allocate to various spending proposals and Ian I'll just go to you quickly now so are we looking at the Liberals somehow no longer handing out money to everybody but going the austerity route here it could be some form of austerity she said she you know the, the, as reported by stephanie these are measures that sound like things maybe a conservative government might do but on the other hand the liberals are obviously working very closely with the ndp but maybe they're shifting a bit to go after blue liberal votes and soft conservative votes and kind of try and get some of those votes away but it's a um, you know, it's, it's kind of an odd thing for a government that's obviously been spending a lot of money as part of its uh, commitment to the way it approaches things. Seems like I have 30 seconds left. I'm going to go back to Mr. Jihu here for a second. You costed that proposed dental care plan um, that will benefit uh, 700 uh, and the benefit of $703 million over three fiscal years. Conservatives are opposed to this, saying it will drive up inflation. Will it? Well, it will probably contribute to inflation. The moment you introduce new money into the economy, like this benefit will do, it gives more money, puts more money in Canadians' pockets, those with children, and they'll have more money to spend. Um, so it will contribute to inflation. The amount of contribution to inflation will be relatively small when you're talking about a $2,500 billion economy and you're adding $700 million. That's a fairly small amount in the grand scheme of things. Yves Jihu, the Parliamentary Budget Officer, Ian Bailey, Globe and Mail, Toronto Stars, Stephanie Levitz, thank you all so much. And that is your Power Play Day in Politics. Thanks for spending your time with us. Be back here tomorrow. See you then. Thank you all. Appreciate that.